There seems to be a thing on social media where, as as adults, Gen Xers, Boomers, the greatest generation, are looking down at the Millennials and the uh, Gen Yers, the 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 I generation, as as not as being too sensitive. Everything offends them, and everything they have to say something about. And and while on the surface we know that life is changing, there are things that we used to say. And I'll and I'll give you an example. When I was a kid, and I'm I'm a Gen Xer, I'm 50 years old. When I was a kid, we used to have this sports game called Smear the Queer, where you would throw a football up in the air. Everybody would run, try to get the football, and then whoever got the football, everybody tried to tackle them. And your only job was to stay uh, on your feet as long as possible. That's a terrible name for a game. The LGBT and Q community, um, and and our LGBT and queer brothers and sisters, and our gender neutrals and our gender uh, fluids. That that's certainly an extremely offensive term. Now, is that being too sensitive? There are a few. Of the older generations who don't like the fact that everything can hurt people's feelings and everybody has to say something or protest something, yet I have seen pictures of the Greatest Generation and the Boomers protesting hippies whose hair was too long. Men saying, "If you have long hair." And you're a man. You're a communist. Now, if that's not sensitive, we have people saying, "Oh, this younger generation—they're just too sensitive." But these are the same people who weren't sharing the same drinking fountains with black people, right? So times are changing, and we do have a question of sensitivity issues. But we also have a question of resiliency because there is a belief among the older generations that they're tougher than the millennials, and I find that hard to believe. I think we're seeing a different kind of toughness with the millennials. I think they're very uh, they're 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 much more willing to do harder work with around things like recycling and、uh, creating less waste and being more accepting of alternative lifestyles and tattoos for crying out loud. So who is more sensitive is is a question, but I think the real question is who's more resilient when things change. Not if they're going to change, but when things change, because things will always change. Change is the only constant. So who's resilient to change, and how do we create resilience in our children? Some children can be devastated by a small t trauma. All right, a divorce. It could be a small t trauma to everybody else in the family, but this kid takes it as a big t trauma, and it truly does wreck their life. We have people like John McCain who went through years of horrendous psychological and physical and mental and emotional abuse, and ran for president and was a congressman and. So we see different levels of resiliency. How is resiliency created? And let's even back off that question and ask the question: What is resiliency? Because if we can't identify resiliency, how do we know how to develop it? How do we know how to create it in our children? And most importantly, what is it that we as parents do that totally screws up developed resi- resiliency in our children? 
thank you for joining me on this week's podcast, Beyond Risk and Back, the number one parenting podcast for parents who have teens that struggle. I'm your host, Aaron Huey, and my guest today is a returning guest, Dr. Hans Watson. Yes, by God, we got Dr. Watson with us yet again. Uh, You first heard Dr. Watson talking about trauma, and he and I broke down trauma on the Beyond Risk and Back episode with the Winter Symposium series that just came out recently. And we broke down trauma to the basic 101, what happens in the brain when the brain gets traumatized. We have him back. And in fact, this is our first episode of a three-part series that Dr. Watson and I are doing because this guy not only has the background to stand behind what he's teaching, but when he teaches it, people are learning. So my guest today on Beyond Risk and Back is Dr. Hans Watson. As I said, my name's Aaron Huey. I'm in my RV on the side of the road somewhere in Colorado. And uh, welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. Dr. Watson, thank you for joining me. And I'm looking forward to this being the beginning of a long friendship and teaching relationship with you. So thanks for being on Beyond Risk and Back. It's my pleasure to be here. It's good to see you again. And and what an exciting topic that that you and I are going to be talking about, which is resiliency. And it's it's so much fun because there's so much we could talk about here, but ultimately it's going to come down to us being able to help parents to see how to build resiliency in their kids because what we're doing in the childhood is going to make a huge difference for multiple generations following this. And so what an exciting thing that we get to participate in. Yeah, I agree. And I'm and as I'm listening to you talk right here at the beginning, I mean, you and I have talked, we're going to talk about the what and the how, and we can even talk about the when does it develop and why does it develop and on and on. So we really are going to go through the who, what, when, why, how, and how much. And and I think this is going to be a, a really potent episode for parents. So Doc, let's start with all those letters you got after your name. I only got three and it's SOB. I, I just, it's what my wife said. It's just, you are, you are a class act SOB. And, no, I'm kidding. But <laughs> talk about the letters after your name, how you got them and what you're doing with them now. So, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I just finished a, um, a video that we're recording to where I talk about um, people can identify whether they're, their uh, mental health provider has the expertise to handle the uh, complex or a severe case. And one of the first things I teach them is stop looking at credentials behind their name because there's, I'm a DO, which is a medical doctor who goes to medical school, the same as MD, and then learns an extra piece on top of that, the manipulative therapy, which is like a chiropractor does. And then after medical school, I, instead of becoming a surgeon or a family med doc, um, I actually chose to go into mental health and become a psychiatrist, which is the physician of the mental health world. And so now you also are one of our uh, distinguished and uh, thank you for your service military members. Yes, yes. I, I, I've been in the military since 1996 and and had a, had a quite an interesting route. I was enlisted first and and uh, was an artilleryman. So if I say what to you, that may be because I don't hear as well as I used to, but, uh, and then became an intel officer. And, and after I, I served in Afghanistan, um, I decided that uh, I, I didn't feel as fulfilled being either of those as I had before. And so I uh, ended up going back to medical school and I finally feel like I'm fulfilling my potential. And, 
And uh, so I do have DO after my name. And then there's a bunch of other letters you can get for your board certifications and all that. But <laughs> I, I purposely de-emphasize all that. And instead I say, let's look at my patients and the results as the real credentials that matter because I know MDs and DOs that are great. And I know some that I wouldn't send my family to. Sure. And there's a, uh, the, you can do that with any, I know some people that don't have as much schooling social workers that I would go see myself and others that I think, um, probably sh- should be only looking at mild cases. And so yeah. I, I say to seem to remember also that, that we were talking when you went to the, um, uh, uh, to the VA, uh, to to get your first assignment, they kind of handed you a folder and pointed you to a room where where vets were suffering with addiction and and suicidality, and they were like, "These are your patients." You were like, "Great!" And <laughs> that was the beginning. That's how all this started. Is that do I have that correct? Yeah, that was the first of my my specialty. Uh, at, at the end of medical school, we did uh, four years of basically working eighty to a hundred hours a week. Um, and that's where you get your hands on and you do a lot of learning to do your specialty. The surgeons are in the OR, the family med doctors are in the, in the clinics and the psychiatrists were in the mental health, uh, side of things. And so right out the gate, they said, here's, uh, you're going to the addiction portion at the VA. This is your, your site that you'll be at. And, and, uh, it was kind of one of those, uh, jump in. It's the deep end, but people need you. And so, uh, what a wonderful group of people that I got to cut my teeth on and, and they were so understanding and so willing to try to see the good in me and didn't, didn't point out the flaws of a brand new doctor who was still learning. They were just wonderful veterans. Well, so then not only thank you for your service, but thank you for your service to our veterans who have, uh, largely starved for good service and help. So thank you for helping those guys and those men and women out. Of course, my pleasure here. Let's jump into the meat and potatoes and let's let's go into resiliency and first just talk about what is resiliency so that as we're as we're doing this podcast for the next 40 minutes we really have a good kind of 101 layman's grasp on what we're actually talking about is resiliency a chemical in the brain is it an attitude is it being tough and and hard and letting water off the duck's back blah 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 <laughs> or are we really talking about neuro pathways that have been created by uh conditioning and reconditioning responses to environments there's some yes to all of that and so the first thing I, I like where you're going with this and the first thing we ought to do is look at resiliency now oxford they talk about resiliency is the ability to recover quickly from difficulty and i'll repeat that because that's important resiliency is the ability to recover quickly from difficulty now inside that there are two very potent things that are implied first To recover from something implies that there was something that knocked you down or took you back, temporarily weakened you. Use whatever adjectives you want there, but it implies that you were overwhelmed just a little bit, temporarily at least. And so you can't recover if you don't have some sort of a falling back or a difficulty that was more than you could overcome in that moment. And so that's the first thing that's implied there. The second is that we're allowing ourselves or we have somebody who's in charge of us that also allows us to experience that difficulty that is going to allow us 
to be overcome and overwhelmed. It's kind of like going to the gym and saying, your muscles are resilient if they can recover quickly from having gotten too tired to do any more bench presses. So your muscles have resiliency if they can heal quickly from that, that heavy lifting session. Well, emotionally, it's the same exact thing. Eventually, life is going to grind you down to where you can't do it on your own. And if you give yourself a brief respite or engage in something, can you recover in a relatively quick fashion? You think to, to have torn muscles and have them repair in a matter of days? Holy cow, the body's an amazing thing. And the brain's even more amazing when you figure that we're actually causing certain parts of the brain to activate and other ones uh, shut down and for it to jumpstart it, restart itself within sometimes minutes. It shows you just how amazing even the neurons in our brain are. Now, this, uh, this kind of bodes a question right out of the gate that I have about traumatic incidences, because a lot of times children will be going through things and we think they're resilient when, in fact, things are getting buried. They're not being um, talked about. The kids are. And we see it a lot in good child syndrome, for example, when you have multiple uh, children, one of the siblings is acting out in a very externalized manner, getting a lot of the family's attention and resources. Yes. Energetic resources, financial resources, emotional resources, and the other children be like, well, I got to fly under the radar here, and that's causing them. So how can we tell the difference between resiliency and this person is shutting down? Yeah, so, so the big thing there would be how do they respond after they've experienced something that's adversarial? And if, if a person can work through it, and they can get to that point that they're saying, hey, I'm doing much better. Um, I'm starting to get back to doing things I enjoyed before, all that kind of stuff. Well, then that's a very positive sign of resiliency. If they get to that point that they're no longer doing the things, hey, they always love ice cream. And now it's been a week and they don't want ice cream. They don't, you know, that would be a behavioral change that would make me say, do we have a problem with resiliency? Do we need to take a time out and, and really analyze what's going on and help them to do it? It's kind of the equivalent. If, if this were the weightlifting and we were doing the bench press, did they get to a point that they need a spot for that last repetition and then we can give them a break for a day or two without doing bench press again? That's what we look at is what behaviors would they normally enjoy? Have they stopped enjoying them? That's a big one that parents can watch for. And we talked about off the air that we're not just going to talk about what resiliency is, but actually talk about the neurobiology behind it. So yes. what's taking place in the brain when resiliency is, is going on, when it's, when it's being created or, or we're using it? Excellent question. So the first thing that you have to know about how the neural circuitry works, and we're going to make this, we're going to oversimplify some things because, like we said before, this is not a med school level neuroanatomy or neurobiology course, and we don't have a week to go through how everything happens like this, but it's still very scientifically accurate. The frontal lobe is the part of your brain that, for all intents and purposes, is where your conscious thought happens. This is where you analyze things. This is the smart part of the brain. Um, the, you know, you look at a dog who's a relatively smart animal uh, and their frontal lobe is just minuscule compared to the humans. 
That's the reason that when a dog smells meat, they immediately go running. Whereas a human, we analyze this. I smell meat and I look over, there's a restaurant that's cooking up hamburgers and blowing the smoke outside to try to attract me. I immediately start analyzing, do I have money to buy a hamburger? Do I have somebody at home cooking dinner and I'd better not come home full or I'm going to be in the doghouse? Do I actually want a hamburger? Is it right for my health currently? There's all this analysis that happens. Well, that frontal lobe does all of that. And that's the part of our brain that helps us come to grips with things. What does this mean? Is this something that represents a threat to me long term? There's all kinds of analyses that happen there. So what we see is in a healthy individual who is not overwhelmed, their frontal lobe is processing the life adversity that's coming along. And they're either A, saying, hey, this, this could be adversity, but here's some risk-reducing strategies. If there's a test coming up, for example, and we're worried about failing, they might say, if I study this, then it will reduce the risk of me failing. And they can then, that part of their brain, then reacts with the part of their brain that says, hey, there might be a big risk here, and that's the amygdala or the emotional center of our brain. Now, remember, the amygdala is not in the conscious part of our brain. That's why nobody can consciously choose, I choose today to experience sadness or I choose to experience happiness. We can only choose the behaviors that are most likely to cause us to feel happy or sad. That's a little proof that, that this is an unconscious part of our brain. And so otherwise, who would consciously choose to be unhappy or sad? So that part of our brain also is the one that causes us to feel potential risk is there, both emotional or physical. But this isn't the smart part of our brain. Its job is not to analyze whether this is a realistic risk or just something that's remotely possible, such as I could walk outside and there is a statistical potential of there being lightning. The amygdala's job is not to say, is it likely today? It's just to say, potential risk of lightning. The frontal lobes part of the brain is the part that is supposed to say, there are storm clouds. I hear thunder. Lightning is really likely today. Or it's sunny. There's a nice breeze. No clouds in the sky. I really don't have to worry about lightning today. This is interesting because you're, this is, this is bridging into the, the, the how resiliency works. But now that you're talking about the, the amygdala, one of the things we see in kids who have already been traumatized, well, when we're trying so hard to help them develop resiliency, is that the in trauma, the amygdala gets damaged, and that ruins the timeline of things. So that's one of the things we see that when when someone is saying, you know, that guy with the red shirt and the khaki pants, you know, beat me all those years ago. And today I can't go into target because my heart rate shoots up. I get a lump in my throat, my feet freeze. And that's because of the, the damage to the amygdala, the trauma does because the frontal lobe can't say, well, that was then. And this is now. And these people's job is actually to help you find what you want, not hurt you. Is it, am I, am I accurate about them? You're 90% you're accurate, there, but there's some real distinct ones, the 10%. And that is the amygdala's job is only to identify what the potential threat is. So in the case you just described, the amygdala is actually doing its job successfully. That's not damaged at all. What is problematic in this is 
the frontal lobe's job is the one to distinguish between is this a target employee or is this a person who is going to harm me? Oh. Now, what happens in trauma is oftentimes we become so overwhelmed in that moment that it never does the analysis of what's the difference between the abuser who wore khakis and a red shirt and any other person who wears khakis and a red shirt. And so it's actually a problem of the frontal lobe not doing its analysis because it's overwhelmed and it needs to restart itself. Does that clear so, that up? Yeah, that totally does. So now we come back to the frontal lobes to get parents to understand resiliency is developed in the prefrontal cortex. Yes. Trauma damages and delays development of prefrontal cortex activity and literally blood flow is going elsewhere to the amygdala, to the limbic system, to the limbic brain, because yeah. it's saying you, you need to survive. And the amygdala is saying danger will Robinson. And then the, the limbic system goes, okay, fight, flight, freeze, faint, fornicate, feed, and fester. Like that's all we can do right now. Those seven things. Um, and that pulls the frontal lobes offline. We're not thinking. But now it's sounding like with the neurobiology of resiliency that it is literally created only in the prefrontal cortex. There is nowhere else. And that makes me want to ask about military training. Because so, I love military with this. You're you're right on the right path. Yeah, I because military training literally does say you're going to be in a life and death situation repeatedly. And you're gonna you're gonna have to do these things so that you're you stay engaged in the prefrontal cortex, right? I think I think you and I talked about um, Lieutenant David uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman's book uh, on combat, yes. uh, his original book on killing, which which was all about how the military moves people through and how it's changed since the Civil War to now that we're we're while we are trying to build resiliency we are also creating opportunity for intense trauma in our vets yes uh yes and no um the thing that usually causes the most intense trauma is when they when somebody encounters some sort of adversity that is so overwhelming that their frontal lobe says i've never even thought of how to confront and analyze something like this and the amygdala is back there saying, this was a real threat. We suffered because of this threat. I am going to always look for this or anything like it because I don't want to suffer again. So the military wisely says, and in fact, we call this pre-exposure preparation. And the pre-exposure preparation says, if somebody is bound to see something horrific, why don't we use even an imaginary time where they could experience this, even if it's in their imagination, and give their frontal lobe a chance to kind of analyze and work through how they would do this? A perfect example would be when I first got into medical school. I remember the first week they said, look, guys, you're going to the anatomy lab and you're going to do an introduction, go ahead and put on your aprons. And I remember thinking, they're going to tell us about anatomy today. No, they didn't. We went in there, we put on the aprons and the gloves like they told us to. 
immediately they opened a box that where there was a cadaver and they handed us a scalpel and said in today's activity you are going to go ahead and make this incision we need to look and find these muscles today this is your first day of learning the anatomy because you're not going to be able to look at the muscles of the people who come into you with a with an injury you need to know where each muscle is and so literally for that first time of cutting through the skin i still remember my group of six of us that that was around the cadaver and we looked at it and somebody said what are we going to do and one one sweet young lady said well i'll draw a line with this magic marker they gave us markers to where the incision should go and very good so they did and then somebody goes somebody's going to have to make the first incision and I still remember thinking to myself, okay, I'll do it. And so I said, I'll do it. And as I went up there, I had grown up hunting and fishing. And I literally said to myself, I have cleaned a fish before. This is just like cutting through the skin on a fish. My brain then could analyze and say, this is not endangered. You are not hurting anybody today because we were all we had never been exposed to a real life human body and cutting it. We were all terrified of hurting somebody. Now, a cadaver is not a human. A cadaver is a person who has donated their body to science so that doctors like me could learn this and help thousands and thousands of people. So it's actually a wonderful person who has said, I'm going to allow thousands of people to be blessed well, in that case, the only way I could do that first incision was make this a fish's skin that I was cutting through. And it worked. And a few minutes later, I had then come to grips that I had cut through a human's skin, even though it was a deceased human, and they were not hurt. My amygdala immediately calmed down and my frontal lobe started saying, now, what should you learn from this? What muscles do you see? What layers of skin? Because now I was becoming a doctor and I was no longer in danger of creating trauma. Okay. So now this puts us on the path of the how to develop it. Because quite frankly, the idea of pre-exposure preparation, which is a mouthful statement, right? <laughs> what a brilliant thing. And, and I have to say, I think that's what school was supposed to be. Now, however, we have an environment where children are prepping for school shootings, but when those first shots ring out, and this is something that they also that that was also talked about in on combat, and and you and I having both shot firearms in our lifetime, uh, understand is that the noise is something your brain doesn't register when you're like like as a, as a career martial artist. For 35 years, I have trained what to do, when touched, when attacked, when blah, 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 blah. But I can also say with all sincerity, when I had a, a, a gentleman who was beating on his girlfriend and I intervened and he threw a rock at me, like, like point blank rage threw a big old rock at me, my brain went, but I don't know what to do with this one. Right. And then so there's always going to be a scenario that we can't that when the children are, are, are doing the duck and cover, the, the, the run, hide, fight trainings. Yes. How do you develop 
how do you how how do you do this? How do you teach your kid how to be resilient? Excellent, excellent question. Well, there's two ways. The first and the best way would be we could simulate everything we're ever going to experience in life and have a dry run of it before it really happens. But as we all know, there are some big ones we can do, such as such as uh, how a person should be treated when they're on a date. That's a simple one. If we do that kind of pre-exposure training, you know, our, our daughters and our sons on dates are going to recognize this is appropriate or this is not, and they'll know how to react. Sadly, though, uh, that's why we do fire drills in our house. That's why we, you know, all these things. Sadly, most things will not fit into that. I could think of this and see it coming beforehand. And so then the next best thing happens, which is the mind and the frontal lobe can use similar things that it has done in the past to figure out how to navigate the, the current situation. And a, a simple example would be the fish. I, it, the fish is nothing like a human, but it was similar enough cutting through, making an incision on a fish to clean it out before I, I took it home to eat it. That was similar enough. I could use that. Lastly, are the ones that just completely unexpected, don't know how to deal with it, anything like that. And in this case, we actually find that most people will find a way to survive it. And well over 50% of people within a few days, their mind will have analyzed what happened and they'll go right through it. And they will then be better prepared for the next time. You know, I was, I'm, I'm reminded of a situation. So, so, uh, martial arts, outdoor survival and emergency medicine have been three of my lifelong hobbies. All three of them I have taught. Uh, extensively in in college settings and all kinds of stuff. My daughter, being the person that I taught martial arts to and outdoor survival to and emergency medicine to, then went ahead and got a uh, EMT certificate that had surpassed my level of training. I was an EMT. She became a wilderness EMT and then beyond that. Okay. And we were in a situation where we watched a woman fall, broke her leg. Um, the the it was a, it, it fractured out the skin and. I had, you know, I had control of the environment and the situation. And I, I told my wife, I said, we need Maya out here. Maya came out and my training is to defer to higher levels of training. So Maya came out, my daughter came out and she took in the situation and she went into freeze. Right. And she turned around, she walked away from the situation and came back and was in complete command. So I literally watched a situation where her brain did what you said, where it, it encountered a, a, an overwhelming experience. And the brain was like, I'm not, I don't, I'm out. And she went into freeze walked away from a second, came back, and the amygdala had, had kicked back in or prefrontal cortex. She was like, all right, I got this, Dad, and took over, and I started following her instructions. Um, so I love the fact that I can see this. Are we suggesting, are you suggesting that parents role play and play act and, and, and our executive director does this with our staff and did this with her kid, should parents be play acting something like, Let's pretend that you get an inappropriate picture on your phone and it's really uncomfortable for us to talk about, but let's practice talking about it. Like, is that something we should do? Only if they want their kids to react in a positive way. Okay, you see, I, I couldn't help but use a little a little humor there, but the answer is a resounding yes. And, and before we move on, I want to point out 
without, uh, maybe you knew it and you're just a genius, but let's, let's go with that theory. But you did an excellent job there of showing how you had prepared your daughter for resiliency in that exact situation. And, and what you did was tell me that in martial arts, you didn't push your daughter at times to situations to where she was overwhelmed and she had to learn how to do something new that her frontal lobe didn't know yet. I have film footage of my 10-year-old daughter underneath two full-grown men in fist 333 suits, which are the full <laughs> padded head-to-toe prisoner extraction suits that prison guards wear, um, and watched her take out both of them on pure instinct and aggression alone. Um, yes. And I know to this day that she has the capability. Same with my son. And so the, the wonderful part of what you're explaining there is you don't have to train your children to be ready for every possible scenario. What you're training your children to do is to learn to say, I don't know how to do this yet. Let me find a way to think of possible options or think of possible sources of information that I could use to learn to overcome this adversity or this adversarial situation. And so that's the so beauty. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. You're literally saying it's not about teaching your kid to have resources. It's teaching your kid to be resourceful. Like there is a difference in that. Having resources is a lot of having this. It's a very material concept. But being resourceful is an internalized thing that if my daughter doesn't know how to handle it, I, this my son is excellent. If he doesn't know how to handle something, he looks it up. He right. will learn on YouTube. He will master it. Yes. And that's because he's resourceful. I, perfect example. I have a fun story that, that, that applies to that. Um, it was fun. It wasn't fun at the time, but it's, uh, it's, it's fun to tell sometimes in, now. And that was... Um, I went into Afghanistan. My job in Afghanistan, I was a trained intelligence officer. And so in intelligence, a lot of times you'll get a situation that they'll say, hey, here's a bunch of information. We don't know what it means. Stop and figure out what it means and then tell us what intelligence this data gives us so that we can react appropriately. So I learned to take in a bunch of information, see if there were any connections or anything that it was telling me, and then recommend some uh, either, either counter movements or say, this is what's coming, uh, but basically assimilating all that information. Well, when I got to Afghanistan, I got there and they, they said, uh, hey, how are you doing? Um, here is an infantry company of Afghan soldiers. Here's an interpreter, and we're giving you an American sergeant. Your job is to go out with this Afghan company and fight or kill any enemy combatants in this entire state. And I said to them, oh, maybe um, you misunderstood. I'm an intel officer, not an infantry officer. And they, they looked at me uh, as if I were a naive young child and said, oh, well, good for you. That's, that's going to be very helpful, maybe. Here's your infantry company. Here's your sergeant and here's your interpreter. And I repeated back to them. I don't think I was very clear. Maybe I didn't communicate. Forgive me. I'm an intel officer. And they quietly smiled at me and said, um, here's your infantry company. Here's your. And so essentially that was my job. Now, this was a little bit overwhelming 
because I was not a trained infantry officer. And I was going out there and my life was on the line. This isn't like go train them in a base. This is you're in a firefight. You're expected to give them uh, uh, training and on the job, help them to see how they could do things better. And so that means I'm right there shooting back at the bad guy with them, helping the commander. Well, the first day we go out on our very first mission and there was a major that came with us. And that major's job, I was a lieutenant at the time, and that major's job was to make sure nothing bad happened. Well, we went and stirred up the hornet's nest. We, we found where, where Bad Guy Central was. We had a list of 10 terror cell leaders is what we called them. These were the 10 bad guys that were going in and doing horrible things like shooting a hole through the wife's hand and then saying, if you don't go shoot at the Americans next, we'll kill you. And so, you know, terrible things. And so we went in there and I said, wait, we know where they are. We can't get them because it always stirs them up. And, and finally, I, I was able to get the resources together and we combined the police and the Afghan army and their version of the FBI. We went into this village and captured nine out of the 10 leaders there. And so trucks full of ammunition and weapons from the, from the bad guys. And, and as we're driving away about a half an hour down the road, Part of the road gave way. The Humvee rolls over. My sergeant is the only one who's been in country more than a few days. He hits his head on the side of the, the vehicle as it rolls over. He's knocked out, has a concussion. I wasn't a doctor at the time. Today, I know it's a concussion. So we have to medevac him out. And normally the Afghans, they kind of take security and make a perimeter and they walk out. These guys were running to their spots and finding cover and concealment. And they were worried. And here I am, that brand new lieutenant. And wouldn't you know, the major comes over flipping out saying, what do we do? What do we do? He's knocked out. What do we do? What do we do? And I really remember thinking, I'm the lieutenant. Why are you freaking out? And so I say to the major, the sergeant is knocked out. We need a medevac. Because I didn't know what the difference between uh, being knocked out. I had very little medical training at the time. And so he said, call a medevac. So he had to go find a place where there was cell phone coverage because our radio was knocked out in the rollover, the satellite radio. The only way we had to call back was a cell phone. So he's going and finding a place where there's cell phone coverage in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan where you think cell phone coverage is bad in the States. Go to a third world country. And here I am back with this rollover vehicle finding what to do. So it was in that moment that I was actually able to stop and I took four or five seconds and I thought to myself, what is all the information I have? Notice what I'm doing for my Intel training. And what does that tell me we need to do? And I immediately said, we need security. We need to take care of the wounded. And then we need to get this truck rolled over. And so immediately I said, security. The Afghans looked at me and said, we got your security. You don't have to tell us twice. We know we're in trouble. Second thing that happened, was we immediately said, okay, uh, medical. And that's where I, I knew I had to get that major who was freaking out, out of my hair, because I, I was not gonna do well with somebody that ranked higher than me, freaking out. So that's why I said to him, take however many you need and go find cell phone service and get a, get a uh, helicopter in here to get this sergeant out. Ended up being four and a half hours. Then I was able to work with my Afghan people, talk with them. And we figured out how, and in the end, when he came back with a Humvee, 
I went back to my roots of growing up in a farm town and I said, do we have a chain? We have another truck. And we did. And so we ended up just hooking a chain to it and getting the other truck and yanking the truck back onto its wheels. And all this, all the transmission fluid had drained out and we ended up putting motor oil in the transmission reservoir. And that's how we drove and got out of there before they could attack us was we did that. What made me able? There's no scenario to prepare you for first day on the job. You just stored up the hornet's nest by capturing all these bad guys. Half of your forces take those bad guys away to put them in jail. And now you have to figure out how to recover this, take care of your wounded person, and make sure you don't get ambushed. It was similar enough for me in that intel world to be able to say, here's all this data. Let me put it together. Let's figure out how I had developed resiliency by being able to say, pause what feels like an emergency, calm yourself, think through what you do know, figure out what to do with that. And that is part of what the parents have to do is exactly that, which is first and foremost, my job as a parent, if I want resiliency, I must push my kids into situations where they safely can become overwhelmed. So we are talking about safe risk. And this is this has been something that has been whittled away in childhood over the years. And it anybody who is a child care provider, a, a, a child health care provider, a child camp care provider, um when 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 I would run kids camps, the first when, in our kids camps, in our kids warrior camp, in our uh, in my in my kid coaching practice, on my first day with a kid, I would hand them a throwing axe, and they would look at me like, "What are you giving?" And the parents were like, "What are you doing?" So I'm taking a risk, and the kid, I'm throw it at the target, and the kid throws it and bounces off. It throws it, bounces, throws it, doesn't hit, throws it, it sticks. I scream, "Yeah!" And all of a sudden, by the end of it, he's telling about his relationship with his parents, what's going on at school, and he's throwing axes and sticking it. But now, there, I'm there going was a bet that you had, you didn't allow people to crowd around the target as he's throwing or anything like that. You had a safe environment, but everybody knows an axe is dangerous. If you then said, here's how I'm going to push you to do something dangerous, but I've also made it so that you're not going to have long-term damage. Everybody's going to stand in back of you. You're only throwing at this target. I'm showing you the proper technique so you don't whack your ear as you throw that. So develop it. So, th so this is where my question is going because like, like your entire story, like I can get, I can get the translation. I can get, you know, they, the way you can get trained in martial arts and outdoor survival in emergency medicine, um, in any kind of medicine, you are literally scenario training that you can piecemeal a solution. Again, resiliency is being resourceful, not having resources. A fire truck has resources, right? But a firefighter is resourceful. They know how to use the truck and which tool to use. And if they don't have the tool, how can they like, 
this is a this is a key component and now we're talking about this safe risk piece on how to push your kids in boy scouts has been a safe risk and then that gets whittled away because we have boy scout uh um uh troop leaders who are hurting children uh, right. we we have camp that that can be a safe risk and your kids shooting a 22 and your kids you know playing soccer with a bunch of strange kids and a bullying situation goes on and a camp counselor sits them down and they talk about it but it, it feels like it's being whittled away and parents, my generation, Gen X generation, the millennials, feel like you got to dive in front of the net anytime trouble comes your kid's way to protect and your I child. And we have lost protection. We, we, we are trading protection for preparation. And we don't know how to prepare our kids for resiliency anymore. So there is one big distinction or uh, excuse me, that's the wrong word. May I change it, please? Th there is one big addition I want to make to everything correct that you just said. And it's not enough to just push our kids to work hard. That is important, but it must push our kids to confront the things that are their adversity. If they struggle to be in social situations that is exactly what we should push them to do, to have them join a Boy Scout troop. Because, you know, the Boy Scouts, sadly, did far more good than there was ever harm. I, I do not want to diminish anything that happened there. But Without boy, a doubt. And it gets completely overwhelmed. But I mean, millions of boys, myself, my brother included, my father. Yes. Like, millions of boys that had helped that had never been harmed by, by some adult who's right. a pedophile. So Yet... You look at that, and what was one of the major ways that Boy Scouts pushed young men to confront their weakness? It's social. Many boys wanted to do, say, I'm really nervous around older boys. I don't know how to talk to them. They've matured, you know, they're not using these words, but they, they've matured to a level that I don't yet understand. I'm still watching cartoons as I start Boy Scouts. And they're talking about the pretty girl that they are hoping will, will write them a love note. These are two different levels. Well, how does that young 11-year-old boy who's just entering the Boy Scouts find something to talk with that 14-year-old boy who now is raging full of hormones and thinking that he ho hopes little Miss Betty will write him a love note? How do they find something to see eye to eye? Boy Scouts was great because it pushed those boys in a safe environment to have to learn to do that. And so the 14-year-old boy was forced to learn to be tolerant of an 11-year-old cartoon watcher and an 11-year-old cartoon watcher was forced to, be, to mature just a little and start to say, oh, you also like football? Well, I like football and find something they could connect on. And that's our role as parents is to say, what is the biggest thing they're avoiding that is not harmful? And how do I push them to learn to overcome that? And I'm even going to go a step farther and say, you must, as a parent, push them to the point that they fail. We want them to fail, to become overwhelmed. And everybody's going to say, wait, well, half people are going to say, that's right, push them till they fail. And th those people, I probably say, yeah, you may want to ease up a touch. And then <laughs> they're going to say, you're, you're terrible. You should, you should never push them to their fail. And I'm going to say to them, yeah, you need to toughen up a little bit. The middle ground is where we're safe. But if that child 
never learns that it's okay to fail along the way as long as you don't keep making the same error? Are they ever going to learn to overcome things that are hard? Or will they then enter the danger zone of my only defense against something that overwhelms me is to run away? My God, I, I knew you and I were going to get into trouble as we started talking. We could make these conversations last forever. There's not winning and losing, right? This, is, this was a healthy thing that Gen Xers did. There's winning and learning, right? But I also remember as a child losing. And I remember getting into the car after a hockey game and me bitching about the referee and bitching about the other team and, and complaining about how the other team cheated. And my dad slammed on the car brakes and he looked at me and he said, he scored on you because he's better than you. And if you want to be better than him, practice more than he does. And he drove away. And he, he, he was, he was, my, my dad was an extremely supportive dad. So I didn't feel he was being violent or aggressive. He was just telling me the truth and the truth hurt my feelings. The truth made me feel bad about myself. And I practiced more and I became a better goalie. And that's the type of thing that we are talking about is that somewhere within this is a healthy balance of pushing your kid, allowing them to fail, handing them the problem back, trusting them to figure it out, and letting them develop resourcefulness so that resiliency takes place. And God forbid, if something bad happens, they find a way to handle it. And I'll go one step farther past with the truth that you just uh, have explained there, and that is, then as a parent, your job is to do exactly what you just described your dad was and support them and tell them, even though you failed at this one instance, that does not define you as a person, as a failure. That just means you are a failure in that moment. But you as a person are this. And that's where people start to develop a sense of identity in that mantra saying, you know what? You may knock me down. You may make me fail. But I am Hans Watson or I'm Aaron Huey. And you know what, what about me that is great is that you may keep me down once, maybe twice, but eventually I'm going to find a way to overcome this and I will be stronger on the end. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like a confident and resilient individual? If the parents never push them to the point that they will fail and then teach them, you are going to continue to fail. I want you to find a way over it or let's together find a way over it. And then when they're finding that way over it, say, and you are such a wonderful person. I know you will do this. Because, and then help them to start to bring an identity of being resilient, of somebody who will find a way to overcome their weaknesses. If you can do that as a parent, you will be a super parent. Let's give parents a connection to you through website, email address, personal phone number, your address, whatever you feel comfortable giving <laughs> to my families here. So uh, the best place to get me is going to be universityelite.com. And I'll spell that for you. That's U-N-I-V-E-R-S-I-T-Y-E-L-I-T-E dot -E -E com. And on there, uh, there's going to be a lot of resources. And we actually have in the makes right now tons more resources over the next three or four months. It's probably going to quadruple. And we're actually going to start putting out podcasts and everything else uh, to help parents because there's so many 
people, uh, as you know, Aaron, that there's so many people out there that are doing a great job. And with just a little bump or a few pointers here and there, they can they can realize they're doing a great job and they can become even better. They can go from good to great or great to elite. And so that's that's where I would send them and tell them, take a look at the content. If you've looked at it in the past, look again in the next few weeks. Everything's changing. We have some big, big stuff coming on board over the next couple of months. Doctor, I think one of the things that I found so powerful about the story you were you you were telling, which which I was I was wrapped by that is is there there were a couple things. Number one, so much was learned in the moment of utter failure and catastrophe. And that that and it, and it came from doing three things that you said: pause, calm, think. You 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 pause for a second. You got your you got calm and you thought. And that's only then can you be resourceful. Mm-hmm. Only then can resiliency truly run the day. Whereas before, prefrontal cortex goes offline, amygdala says we're in danger, and your limbic system steps forward and says, "All right, everybody, quiet down. I got this." And that's not what we want. We only want yeah. those in truly desperate survival situations where we cannot handle what's going on. But the problem is. The limbic system gets habituated in running the show. And people need to understand it literally is. We have seen on functional MRIs, it literally is activating that frontal lobe that was offline. And, and there's we it's interesting as we watch that, just calming down slightly is enough to give the frontal lobe a chance to start itself up. And wouldn't you know, one of the easiest ways to calm yourself slightly is three deep breaths and we could go into the physiology of why but if you're in that moment it, as a parent and you find yourself beyond your wits end to where you're saying I'm not feeling very supportive right now that is literally one of those ways it won't solve the problem of that's causing the anxiety but it will give your frontal lobe a chance to say okay there's my moment let me start up and now you can start making real good decisions and you can calmly start doing things that will build resiliency as well as helping those children to realize I've got to ch- change what I'm doing here. I'm in trouble, but I also feel supported by this person who is correcting me. So simple things like that are easy oftentimes. It, it, it is so easy. And just like the the survival brain taking over. That I, I teach the four, 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 four breathing that the Green Berets do. The 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 four in, hold for four, four out, hold for four, do it four times, right? And but if you don't practice it, like like the the moment the first bullet flies, or the moment the principal calls and said your son was ditching, we caught him, he's got a bag of weed, we're expelling him, come get him. If you can't <laughs> stop and breathe in that moment, you will not know what to do, and you will make it worse. And that, I I mean, this is the the other thing I loved about your story. And this was my second thing, the, the, the learning from failure, but everything you talked about, if parents can go back, rewind this podcast and listen to that story again and replace the bullets and the car flipping over and the road giving way and the, the enemy territory with some situation that they were in. The phone call, the kid's been arrested, the daughters try to commit suicide, the kid's anxiety is now no longer, they're refusing to get out of bed and go to school. Our reaction to 
what you said in the beginning, which was the overwhelming encounter. Our reaction can be either responded to with resourcefulness or reacted to with panic and fear, just like the major in your story. And, and one last parting comment that I'd like to, to make sure we get in there is some parents that I work with uh, sometimes wonder if it's too late. I have never seen an example, even with adult children, where parents who start incorporating this, that it didn't have ma- amazing results. So never think it's too late. Even if you're, you have that 14-year-old who knows it all, oftentimes if you'll do this, you will see changes like you never thought could happen. And so don't ever lose hope. Perfect. Well, I'm, I'm happy to say that you and I are talking in a week to do our next episode. So parents, stay tuned for another episode with Dr. Hans Watson. Um, this has been a great episode. We really could have made the entire series just about this topic, but we've got some other stuff to talk about. So parents, if you haven't listened to Dr. Watson's um, previous show with me about trauma, go back. It's a great primer for all the conversations we're having, especially this one. So you can see what's going on in the brain before we're wondering why our children aren't resilient. Um, But if this is where you're starting and this is where you want to leave it, then Doctor is going to be back uh, for two more episodes. So Doc Watson, thanks so much. Uh, You and I will be talking a week. Give your website one more time, please. UniversityElite.com. Perfect. Parents, remember, you got to take care of yourself first, your adult relationship second, and your children third, because in that way, we do our best work with our children. If you are wondering if your child needs residential care, call my facility, Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center at 303-443-3343. The assessment is free, and if we can't help you, we will help you find help. Also, parents, if you would like to inquire about one-on-one coaching with me, I do coach families who are in crisis. You can go to firemountainprograms.com slash coaching and take a look at what we have going on there. Again, parents, thank you for making Beyond Risk and Back a number one episode for families who are struggling with their children. Please listen, like, subscribe, and share, and please go to iTunes and leave me a review. I can't tell you how much that helps get this show into the hands of other parents who are struggling with their children. My name's Aaron Huey. Thank you for listening to Beyond Risk and Back, and we will see you next week.